You're listening to the Tuna Town Talks Fishing Podcast with Captain Paul Miller. Hello everyone, and thanks for listening. I'm a full-time charter captain based out of Ennis, Louisiana, and over the years I've seen some of the most incredible things, and some of my friends have told me some of the most unbelievable stories, so much to where I decided I would like to start a podcast. And now a word from our title sponsor, Blue Wave Boats. Blue Wave has been the number one selling bay boat along the Gulf Coast for many years now. And with over 50 square miles of marsh located out of Venice, Louisiana, it is essential that I choose the right boat to put my clients on fish. For the last four to five years, I've been using a 24-foot bay boat powered with a single 300 Suzuki, and it's been an amazing boat. However, over the years, I've also learned that I like to target a lot of different species that are near shore, so having a bigger boat with more power could help with that, which is why I've decided to move to a 26 Pier Bay powered with twin 200 Suzukis, and this has been the perfect size boat for being able to target multiple different species, especially because the boat has over four live wheels in it, which allows me to use multiple different baits to target multiple different species. With the flush mounted seating, I'm also able to maintain ample fishability, all while still providing a comfortable ride for my clients. With the step toll technology, I'm able to be more fuel efficient at higher speeds, which is also a huge advantage when making long runs through the marsh. If you would like to purchase a Blue Wave boat, head on over to bluewaveboats.com where you can find your local dealer. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Tuna Town Talks. I'm really excited about this one today. I have uh, Dr. Jim Franks here with me, and uh, he's going to answer a whole bunch of questions, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Say hey to everybody, Dr. Franks. Hello, everybody. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here today with Paul, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity to be part of this uh, this podcast thank you yeah. yeah awesome thank you for coming and correct me if i'm wrong but you've been a marine biologist for over 40 years is that right that's that's the case yes <laughs> that's right that is a ton of experience and um i can't wait to uh see what what all you can tell us but um um thank you for coming and and all that but um i guess we'll start with uh like where did you originally get your passion for the water what made you want to become a marine biologist in the first place well, you know, I grew up in Tennessee, and it's a long ways from the ocean, but I came down here to Ocean Springs to the Gulf Coast Research Lab back in the 60s, one summer in the 60s, for um, summer classes, mm-hmm. just to kind of get a feel for the marine environment. Well, that did it for me, and I realized at that point that's what I wanted to do. So I went back to my school in Tennessee and graduated and then came back down here uh, and entered the graduate school at the University of Mississippi and uh, was still working here at the time. Got a job here at the lab back in the day. It was really, really a small place. There were about, as I remember, about 15 people. What year was that? That was in six, uh, my summer, first summer here was 63. 63, wow. Yeah. <laughs> then I came back and began graduate school here in 64. Wow. And then back and forth at Ole Miss, I did my research here at the lab, but I did all the coursework up in, in Oxford, no miss. Uh, and then got a job here uh, after I graduated uh, with, from graduate school. And it's just been so an interesting, long story ever since, you know, <laughs> lots of different opportunities and things that I was able to do uh, that were very interesting. Um, and also I felt like 
represented some some good opportunities for research and then work with a lot of great people and meet the fishing community here on the coast and yeah get to know a lot of people in the business yeah if you, if you yeah. talk to any fisherman they know who you are <laughs> well it's just been an interesting thing to do you know because it wasn't only just the the research it was the people too that that inspired me here you know yeah that has a, a whole community the to entire it. community yeah. yeah and uh so that had a lot to do with me wanting to stay here and work here and and uh, continue so you stayed here the entire pretty much your whole career was here at the research lab yeah, and then I did work for uh, the DMR okay. for about eight years. Okay. Uh, doing some work on uh, uh, estuarine evaluation, estuarine descriptions, and also I was involved in uh, co-authorship of the of the Mississippi Coast oil spill plan. Oh, wow. In case we ever did have a major spill here, this was a guideline and, and a guidance document to what... Um, Habitats and environmental uh, areas should be protected on a priority basis. Hmm. So that that was an interesting exercise. It took about three years to was to, that to write pre-spill that. or that was pre-spill. That was pre-spill. Pre-spill, yeah. Wow. In fact, it was in '87. That was in 1987. We wow. had that finished then, and there are copies of it around somewhere. But I understand during the spill, it actually came in handy. Really? Uh, yeah, because we had very in great detail identified just about every darn foot of this coastline yeah as to what it was you know is it a marsh is it a sandy beach is it a critical habitat for a certain species uh which fishes are important in this area at what time of the year you know is it a nursery habitat it was a big detailed document with lots of maps <laughs> uh each color-coded to a priority scale pretty interesting yeah. It involved walking a lot of the coast, going to the islands, a lot of helicopter followers with photographs. Hmm. It was a, it was a big project. I enjoyed. I mean, that. I guess that that would be something you would prepare for, seeing that we have all the oil rigs. Well, out that, there, there was know. some funding made available back in those days for oil spill. It's called oil spill contingency planning. Hmm. And this was uh, DMR managed to get some funding to do that, and I was involved in in that plan. So that's pretty interesting. In addition to a number of other things, working with the seafood industry and mm -hmm. uh, helping them solve their waste issues at the time. Right. Um, what to do with a lot of the waste products. And that was an interesting opportunity there. Yeah. But I really wanted to get more into the detail, the biology of the fish, you know, the fish ecology of fishing. Really? So I, <clears throat> I came to the lab after that time with DMR. And I've been here doing that sort of work for about 30 years, I guess. So what's the difference in the work? Can you explain that a little bit? Well, I mean, the, the work that I'm involved in now is, of course, with the team. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a team of biologists and scientists here at the Gulf Coast Research Lab. We're part of the University of Southern Mississippi. Right. And located here in Ocean Springs. And I'm, I'm in the Center for Fisheries Research and Development. It's one of the research centers of the university. Okay. And we focus on fisheries, all aspects of fisheries, you know, the biology of the fish, their habitats. We're interested in uh, the seafood industry, how we can help right. assist that industry. Oh, you you meaning know. like aquaculture, right? Aquaculture uh, and, uh, and assessing fisheries, you know, maybe providing. A lot of what we do, we provide information to, say, DMR and helping them to manage the fisheries. Yeah. 
Uh, so we do a lot of that research that leads what, to what some What about of hatchery work? Do you guys do any hatchery Don't, work? I, I, I've done some of that, but that is, uh, that is another center here at the lab. That's the aquaculture center. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Thad Cochran Aquaculture Center, and they do most of the rearing of the fish, the spawning of the fish in captivity, that sort of thing. They've done a lot with trout, mm-hmm. uh, snapper, um, cobia. did some cobia work earlier on, and now they're involved with triple tail. So just I, something I was brought up to me the other day, and I just want to clarify while we're on the topic, but is, so are any of the fish that we catch out in the Gulf right now, would they be hatchery-based fish? Like, would they have, like, hatched from a hatchery and then they were out there and well, then it, we catch them now? it's possible. It's a, it's a difficult thing to document. Really? Uh, but it is possible. I mean, the idea, for example, for the trout hatchery was for releasing the fish back into the Mississippi waters to to replenish it, replenish and help build the trout fishery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to assume that that has happened. Yeah. Uh, It's a lot of work though. And it's complicated to try to go out and catch some fish to see if they were hatchery fish or not, because they probably are not a great percentage of the population that's there already. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, because, like, in, in uh, Alaska, that's what they do a lot for a lot of the salmon that they catch are actually hatchery salmon, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Somebody told me that, and I thought that was interesting. It is, <laughs> and, and, you know, and the same is true with uh, Red Snapper. Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, there's an ongoing project now in, on rearing triple tail at the hatchery in captivity. Spawn, you know, they recently had the first actual real spawn where we had a lot of larvae survive, and now they're raising those young fish. So that's become. So they actually fish. raised they're fish raising, from the from, from the, the egg egg and sperm. Yeah, yep. and that's uh, that was recently published, and that's an important piece that's of work. That's really cool. And that's being funded through uh, through a number of places. I think the DMR is helping with that, and then the Gulf States Marine Fisheries Commission has shown a real interest in triple tail. Yeah. Uh, so that's there's a lot lot of interest now focused on triple tail, primarily because. The fishing for triple tails increased yeah. pretty radically, and it's a great <laughs> fish. It really is. It's, it's gotten it's more great, popular all the yeah, way around. Yeah, it has. It's a great fishery too. I remember when nobody knew what they were really. You mm-hmm. know, you'd, yeah. you know, thirty years ago, you'd go past a big floating bag and something that looked like a fish under there. Oh, well, okay, keep going. <laughs> now you sort of understand what you know, yeah. their habitats and their behaviors, and it's, it's really grown. So this is a this is a a way to help understand uh, the life history of triple tail and, and part of that is spawning them and rearing them in captivity yeah where, where do they spawn do we even know what do we know it's still kind of unknown mm-hmm. uh we think offshore south of here mm-hmm. uh because that's the only place we've ever collected the very young ones that are say a few days old mm-hmm. it was offshore mm-hmm. uh never seen any of those little super little guys a few days old in the sound yeah, you're right. And then a lot of the, a lot of the fish we've examined over the years, the big ones, when we do look at them, to see their reproductive condition. You know, they, a lot of those big fish with the well-developed reproductive systems are offshore, or have come from offshore, and they may be in the sound too. But we think they may sort of move back and forth. Right. It's it's not well known. That's still kind of a mystery as to where they actually spawn. Yeah. And. You know, like, one of the things with, like, uh, we try to let let go all the big bull reds because we know they don't reach sexually maturity until they're 30 inches long. Right. Would, 
would you say that there's a should we make a slot on the triple tail or do you think that the brute breeding stock is like a mid-range fish or or would that make a difference well you know the thing the thing we need and and it hasn't been done yet but i think it will be done there's never been really a stock assessment of triple tail unlike trout cobia and redfish we don't really have a good feel for the for the size or the uh, dimensions of the triple tail stock in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And not just here in Mississippi, but Gulf wide. Um, and you know, back in the day, everybody wanted to uh, keep the biggest fish because they thought they were no longer viable for reproduction. You know, they've, they've done their thing now. Let's yeah. take them out of the fish and we're not gonna hurt anything. Well, we've learned over the years, they're probably the most productive. Yeah, they produce more. Yeah, so uh, that's true for Marlin for I mean just about anything of that size, really, and even smaller pelagics like cobia and mackerel and triple tail. So um, don't know we you know right now they're being managed at in Mississippi at 18 inches and three per person per day, mm-hmm. and that was put in place a few years ago based on our work here at the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And then a few other states kind of followed suit after that because there was not much management. On triple tail. Yeah, there wasn't it, any. There it, was no limit whenever it, I first got to Venice. Yeah, it was wide open. There's five now. It's five yeah. a person. And I remember they called us from Louisiana. We sat down and had a meeting with them. We told them how we did it and why. And uh, then they said, well, yeah, we need some management too. And so they've done a pretty good job, I think, over there. Uh, but, yeah, they need to be managed because we've, we realize that uh, an 18-inch fish is getting pretty close, if not already, reached maturity. Mm-hmm. to spawn right yeah getting close uh, the ones we've raised here in the tanks over the years the we've seen them get up to four pounds in one year five pounds in one year and they were it's about an 18 inch fish wow and so they're pretty close to maturity at that point they grow real fast mm-hmm. you know they're not a real active animal that was, that, you know that's kind of the the idea too whenever i think about not keeping like a, a bull red can be what how old can a bull red get oh they can get up 40 years, Multiple, 50 yeah, years old, oh yeah, right? And, yeah, and even some of the snapper, one was aged at about 60 years of age, so. But what's the what's the oldest triple tail we've Well, reached? you know, we looked at that and had we had some difficulty with that because they're not the easiest fish in the world to age. Oh, okay. Uh, how, for, a, how accurate is aging a fish? Well, I think it's, it, it, we think it's better. Uh, uh, our colleagues uh, over, uh, research colleagues over at the Mississippi State, uh, coastal uh, coastal center there, coastal uh, estuarine and, and coastal education center. Mm-hmm. Marcus Dryman and his people published. Yeah, he was on my podcast as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, they think they've pretty well figured that out. We had some trouble with it. Now, we want to go back and maybe look at some of our stuff based on how they did it. Mm-hmm. But we, you age fish around here typically using the ear bones. Mm-hmm. which is a great way to do it. And in most cases, you, you can do it. You know, if you get enough samples, you feel confident in your ages. We never felt good enough, really, about what we were seeing because the elements were so complicated. Mm-hmm. It's unlike anything we've ever seen before. Hmm. Uh, but Marcus and his team seem to have figured out some things that we'd like to go back and look at in our samples. I think the oldest fish they found was seven years old, maybe? Seven years old. I think okay. something like that. That's... We think that those fish that, that you see down in Venice, those 35 pounders or whatever, you're close to that, right? 35, maybe 36? 
Yeah, so well, the big ones? Uh, the biggest was 38, 38 36. Yeah. I mean, there's 30 pounders that get caught every year. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, makes me wonder if maybe they're not older. Yeah. Uh, they're you don't get sample you don't get a chance to age many fish that size. Yeah, you have the carcass of. And I have some in the freezer here that I'm just trying to get to. Yeah. And I think Marcus looked at that big one. Did he? Yeah, I think so. That was there, and I think that was maybe a seven or eight year old fish, something like that. I think. Seven years ago. But now, like Cobia, for example, you know they get up to 128, 30 pounds. The biggest one we've ever aged here. But our lab was a 128-pound fish caught in Pensacola, and it was only 11 years old. 11 years old. Yeah, so they just get big fast. Wow. Um, and see, and that's one of the things that is, like, if you put a slot on a fish that dies after, you know, another year of it being there, you know, how, I just don't, I guess I wouldn't see it as being as, um, as helpful as like a releasing bull reds, for instance, right. or like big red snapper. Big red snapper, red snapper get old as well. Yeah, oh, they get huge. Yeah, yeah they yeah. get big and they get up to the 40, 50 years of age, and some even older than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's a different story, you know, when you look mm-hmm. at fish that, that live to be that old. Yeah. Versus these pelagics, most of the pelagics don't live to be very old. Yeah. You know, your mackerels, your cobia, triple tail, even some of the. Billfishes, they just they just don't yeah. reach those older ages. Is there anything that you think we can do as like humans or just fishermen in general to um, make pelagic species more like prolificate more? Like uh, maybe like fads or making more structure that's out there suitable for well, pelagic species? Do you think that? I guess <laughs> it's a really wide debated question. It but is does structure make more ha- more sure. fish or, or does it just attract them as i guess uh, you what know I'm asking. we know it attracts the reef fishes you know that's been the discussion over the years with reef fish mm-hmm. you know are you attracting more or are you producing more how does yeah. that work and that's been studied a lot with different answers mm-hmm. uh the pelagics you know they move the reef fishes are going to stay pretty well put they yeah. move around a little bit you know been documented at night to move off different places and feed and come back maybe but these pelagics particularly the ones we've been talking about triple tail and cobia and mackerels historically they've been known as migratory pelagics coastal migratory pelagics <coughs> so they move around a lot um yeah. when you think about all the old structure we've got in the northern gulf that's a lot of those are essentially a lot fans, of structure yeah. Those are fans yeah. essentially and then some people do put out their own private fads yeah. Uh, but the fish don't stay there all the time. Yeah, they just uh, like, come and like around a there. reef. Yeah, so I think the way to do it is what is try it, what we've been doing for years and trying to do is to better understand their biology, yeah. their spawning habits, and hopefully their locations. Understand more about their life history and their habitats and kind of manage it based on that kind of information and 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 with input from the fishery. Yeah, you know. Um, Fads are important to fisheries in the Caribbean. I've been there and seen that. They rely on those a lot. Yeah. And, like, there's places like Costa Rica, and they'll, I mean, I have people say that, you know, three or four marlin a day used to be a fantastic day in Costa Rica. Now it's, you know, 10, yep. 20, 30 marlin a yep. day. Yeah, yeah. So. These are features in the water that fish haven't seen before. And, you know, it's just, just a natural habit of fish together around structure yeah, into feeding patterns and they're, dra- they're just drawn to structure you know yeah. so they're drawn to a path of least resistance yeah and it's uh 
often wondered over the years how that's changed their natural behavior. Yeah. I think it's led to some fish being not quite as migratory as they might normally have been. Yeah. And that might lead to higher catch levels. Yeah. So, you know, you, it, it, it's an interesting topic and fads are becoming more and more part of the discussion here yeah. in, the, in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool as a fisherman to, you know, see them and how well they oh, work. Oh, it is. Yeah. And, but one of the things that, you know, I don't, as a fisherman and as a podcaster, I don't want to advocate for more triple tail fads. Right. If it's That's just right. going to lead to more harvest. That's right. And, you know, how, how do we prove, um, and I think people have been trying to prove it for a long time that structures make more fish or or don't they? You know, that's a big question. Yeah. Me personally, I, it's hard for me not to believe that they do. For I mean, like, how many mangrove snapper would we catch if, sure. you know, if we didn't have oil rigs? Or how many sheephead would we catch if we had no pilings, you know? and Those studies have been going on <laughs> for 25 years. Yeah. Very little has been looked at regarding fads, yeah. at least in this country. Uh, and, you know, of course, a lot of the uh, European and foreign fleets tuna fleets, they rely on fads. You know, their fleets off the coast of Africa, for example. Really? I did not know that. Oh, they have these huge fads that they deploy. They sea. put them out themselves Yeah, and they're satellite, the satellite control. They know where they are. You know, they track them around. They know where to go to the next fad. So there's a series of they just visit the different fads and, and catch uh, the fish. And then fad's still operational. It's still, it's still attracting fish. And they keep up with it with satellite telemetry, and they know exactly where to go. Wow! It's it, but it's huge number of feds, and, and from what I've read, that's interesting because you, know, you could just drive it around almost, and the bait comes to it, and then the tunas are there. Yeah, well, they just well they just put them out. They just put them out, and they then they just out. know where they're at. They know? know where they're at, and they may be a hundred miles, two hundred miles, three miles apart. Who knows? Wow! Uh, <laughs> there's some literature on that. I'm not. I don't know that much about it, but. Um, the issue there is a lot of times those fads are lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They continue to draw fish and, and you know maybe lead fish into areas where they normally wouldn't be, and they they wash up on beaches and you know there are issues with them. Yeah. But I read something recently where off the coast of Africa alone there were like thousands of fads. Really? Yeah, it's pretty wow. amazing. Pretty amazing thing to think about. There's those are huge fleets over there. Yeah. You know, huge tuna fleets and. Yeah. Uh, these are the big, the big fleets. Um, you can look that up. There's some stuff on that. I, I don't know much more about it than that, but um, they rely on fads because unless they have good ideas on where to follow water currents and temperature breaks and that sort of thing, they're not going to see that many fish. Right. You know, the old way of doing it was that way. You know, they historically mm-hmm. had places to go. And, now they're releasing these fads. So it's yeah, that gives them a destination, something to go fish. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And I, I guess you know the the main reason I'm uh, asking this question is is because like as a as a guide and as a podcast host, I you know I trying to promote the sport of fishing and trying to build it. And you know you you, you take people fishing and you hope they come back. Um, <clears throat> I've had other people other scientists or even other people say that we need to you know try and not promote it as much or you know you you need less people out here doing this and my whole uh thing is well if we have more people that love it and more people that want to protect it um then you know we can do something to to help maybe make more fish in the future and one of my ideas for making more fish would be to make more habitat but 
how how do you feel about that? Do you think that we should um, try to keep and continue to promote the sport of fishing, or do we do you think we should shy away from that? I think I think you need to promote the value of the fishing experience, uh-huh. and that includes uh, considering conservation. Yeah, you know, and and provide your experience and input into the management process. Yeah, you know, hearings and places of that sort provide information that that you know about that you see. Mm-hmm. And because the way things are right now, the fisheries are managed by regulations. Yeah. And the, the, re, the managers and the regulators need all the information they can get. Mm-hmm. Um, and these fish are important economically. You know, it drives a big economic uh, base, yeah. you know, fishing base in the communities. And employs me. <laughs> yeah, so it's important. Uh, and if it's managed to the betterment of all, that's ideal. And it's hard sometimes to reach that because there's so many different opinions on how things need to be done but it you know you really have to rely in many ways in 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 my opinion most ways on available science that's why it's so important to keep doing all this research because every bit sort of adds another piece to the puzzle and you you get a little better at it perhaps and uh and the fishery will change with time and the management has to respond accordingly um or the, I guess, the management may change and the fishery will respond accordingly. But as as a guide, you know, you want to promote your business. Yeah. Um, and you're assuming that the current management system is doing the best it can to conserve and protect those, those species mm-hmm. you know, and their stocks. Yeah. Uh, it's a never-ending process of trying to improve our knowledge about these fish. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just we're interested in biologists, we're interested in all aspects of this. You know, we, we like fishing, yeah. you know, and we want to see the fishing community thrive. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it all depends on the health of the stock. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just hard to, um, you know, know as a, as a fisherman, if we make this sport get more and more popular, will we have to, I understand. you know, is it, yeah, it's, what's the... You know, it, it, my, my whole thing is if we could get everybody on board to say more habitat makes more fish. And if that is the case, I hope it's true. Right. And then, you know, because we spend a lot of money on a lot of different things. Like if somebody gave you a, a trillion dollars tomorrow and said, you know, use all this money yeah. and all these humans, you, do you think we could make more fish? I, you know, I, I think we could, you know. Right, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, making habitat for pelagic fish is complicated. It's yeah. not like building a reef. Well, I mean, would would the yellowfin tunas be in the Gulf of Mexico um, the 12 months out of the year if the oil rigs weren't there? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, yeah. it would be interesting <laughs> to know. You know, there's some old surveys that were done bef- before the before the oil spill boom. You know, Noah did some work back in yeah. the 40s and 50s. Really? They did? Not much. They not did much. like one or two surveys, and they found tunas, and they, they would go, you know, find around these temperature breaks and, yeah. you know, uh, current breaks and that sort of thing. That's where they exist mm-hmm. uh, because there were no structures. Yeah. So it was a normal, natural lifestyle of the tunas to find themselves around bait, around you know uh, currents, the lip current, around the spin-off eddies and right. temperature breaks, places like that. That's where they that's was where their they habitat. Be, that's where they would be at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think the. Uh, the structures in the Gulf now sort of offer a different type of a, of an opportunity for them to feed and gather and yeah. 
it, it sort of changed the dynamic of their life, their life history. Yeah, I would assume so. Like their whole, the way they do day-to-day things would be totally different. Yeah, if they're that, staying at one rig, you know, that's probably not very natural for them at all. Right, <laughs> and so what would they have done? Yeah. We, you know, we don't know Yeah. here. Now, there are areas around the world where people are trying to understand that where you don't have such uh, structures. Yeah. And it seems to be they do what we thought they would do. You know, they would spend time around certain places that provide food and good habitat and the current breaks and seasonal migrations. That was the purpose of the migration in the first place, really, was to provide them opportunities to go to places that benefited them on a seasonal basis. Yeah. They're either food or a place to spawn or that's why they moved around so much. Yeah. <laughs> so that's changed a little bit probably. It's like Cobia. 30 years ago, we used to think it was strictly a migration from South Florida up to here, maybe down to the river and then back. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you hear about winter catches of Cobia all the time, you know, yeah, offshore. Yeah, catch them all the time. Down around 120, 180 feet of water, something like that. Mm-hmm. It could have been they were there all along and nobody fished for them during the winter, but it seems to be like there's more, you hear more about that. Mm-hmm. And it may be they just, there may be a non-migratory group of Kobe in the Gulf, yeah. in the Northern Gulf. Maybe there's a subgroup that just doesn't move. I don't know, we don't know that. And that's something we'd really like to know. Yeah, I, I feel that way about the Kobe. I've, I've caught a Kobe every month of the year and I've, same thing with Triple Tail. I've caught Triple Tail every month of the year now. Yeah. So <clears throat> I well, definitely it, think that there's I think, as a fisherman, this is my opinion, is I think we have both. I think we have a migratory yeah. stock, and then we have we also have some that just that just stay. It's, it's, they find the temperature, the food, or whatever. Right. They can I don't think so. There, you know? <laughs> what would be interesting is it the same group all the time, you know, or are there new, new ones recruited into that, and do some of the one, older ones leave? And How does that work? Yeah. And we used to wonder, you know, this migratory group that comes up from Florida, we know Kobe spawn here in, in the summertime offshore here. Mm-hmm. You know, they spawn all along the northern Gulf in the summertime, spring through summer. Um, makes me, I often wonder does it, if there is a non-migratory deeper offshore group, do they come into the same area to spawn? Mm-hmm. You know, do they meet up with these other guys or are they isolated offshore and stay there? We don't know any of that. And there's also something that's so unique about Louisiana and the the Mississippi River there that just makes it totally different from anywhere else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's not just there. That river influences lots of things great distances away. Yeah, it does. You know, it affects us, impacts us over here, I'm sure, offshore somewhat. Yeah, I never realized how much it affects everything until I went over there and started guiding. <laughs> and you oh, start yeah, to then, realize then, how, you, then you see a lot of that, mm-hmm, yeah. You see a lot of it. It's well, crazy. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say you've caught triple tail every month of the year. Um, was that, were they, all, were those winter caught fish, were they inshore, offshore? I mean, that's something, that's something we don't know much about at all. Where do these guys go in the wintertime? So I, I would say, and, and this is just what I've experienced and, and like from guiding and what I've found, um, through diving a lot too. Um, in the spring we have, uh, the water temperature is warmer underneath and then cooler up top because that that river water that the surface temperature is is cooling it and then as it flip as the summer turns around and into june and july it flips at some point in june and july the surface temperature is now warmer than the sub temperature 
And then when that happens, you'll start seeing all the tarpons come up. You'll start seeing the tarpons roll, and you'll start seeing the triple tail on the surface, and the cobias will be up on top, and everything kind of kind of comes alive. You'll see the mackerels jump in and all that kind of stuff. And then right now, as we get the cold fronts, it starts to flip again. And then that's when you'll start catching the triple tails and things. You'll catch them deeper. You won't even see them. You won't see them at all. You'll have to catch them deeper and underneath those yeah. those thermal clines. So it's yeah. one of the things I've learned, and, the, and it's really, really drastic around the mouth of the river. That's what I've found, you know, because you got to have blue water right there, you know. What times? It's 400 fantastic feet. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> I've right seen there, it. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Big grass lines. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting when you see that. I, so, it, you know, the, and, uh, of course, Diane Gibson's here with me today during this podcast, and Diane and I worked together for many, many years. She runs our tagging program. Uh-huh. And we've we've never been able to figure out if triple tail tagged along our coastline here in the summertime were caught offshore. I just we've just never seen in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. It's just and I, we don't know if it's people aren't out there fishing much. We maybe a few <laughs> little reports here and there, but uh, we don't know if there is an offshore movement during the wintertime. Uh, we we don't know. That's just something. Yeah. We don't know. Most of the movement has been either down towards South Florida mm-hmm. or hardly any movement at all. You know, it's fish tagged here, you know, maybe called a year later or whatever, but most of the fish triple tail have been tagged here. Uh, Diane, I was talking about this morning, about 78, about 80% of them were recaptured no more than 15 miles from where they were tagged. Really? All the ones out of Mississippi or Louisiana? Or oh, any, any, anywhere in our tagging program, along the northern Gulf primarily. Really? And, so uh, if they tag one in Panama City, Florida, it, it would probably be probably be caught over there somewhere, somewhere close to there, fifteen yeah. to twenty miles. Yeah. And uh, unlike Cobia, that have we've gotten tagged recaptures from Cobia that uh, up to eight years, I believe, on one. Really? Oh yeah. After eight years. Yeah, that wow. was good stuff. That's pretty cool. Um, but triple tail, it's been no more than two years, and like I said, most of them are caught. Within a few, you know, short period Craig, of time. Didn't Craig tag one here, and then it was captured like South Florida somewhere? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, we yeah. had some recaptures in South Florida, but we've only had one fish, and we were talking about this this morning. Only had one fish tagged here in in the Gulf that made it around uh, Florida and up the East Coast. We oh really? Only, That's pretty cool. Only Steve. one. Wow. Whereas we had several cobia that were you know reported over there. Hmm. And we haven't had any triple tail tagged off the East Coast. And we have some people over there who really got into it many years ago. We used to go fish with them. They were yeah. the Perez's, uh, Christine and Troy. They had some world records, and we we enjoyed being with them, you know. And they tagged a ton of fish. We've never had one from the East Coast be recaught here in the Gulf. Hmm. Well, so, part of me think that might be because of, uh, I mean, like, if I was a triple tail and there's enough bait and everything to keep you here like you wouldn't you wouldn't want to move no right? but yet we think <laughs> and of make it around the keys and somebody's yeah, gonna catch that's you a right long there. way to go <laughs> uh but they're still thought of in terms as being a migratory fish yeah now uh our friend steve vandekoy at the gulf states marine fishers commission here in ocean springs he's involved with with us and with um uh dmr in um, acoustic tagging triple tail. They're doing a lot of work there. They've just kind of got this program underway. Last year it started, it's putting acoustic transmitters in triple tail to see what those fish might do. Now, 
Yeah, I helped him do that with um, yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so you've yeah. been you know that you yeah. know how that works then, yeah. Yeah, so that you can explain how it works if you like for Well it's just uh, very quickly it's just another way it's another it take it's another way of looking at fish movement just rather than tag recapture. Mm-hmm. Because these transmitters emit a certain code that's surgically implanted in the fish, mm-hmm. and the fish is released, say here at Horn Island, and that tag, or it's called a tag, it's really a little electronic transmitter. It's got a code that it beeps out, um, and some of them are good for several years, some not so long. Depends mm-hmm. on which one you use. But as the fish swims along, there is what we call an array, or a setup of a receivers along the coastline and we're trying to build that up mm-hmm. but there you know it goes all the way around toward Alabama and down to Panhandle Florida and all the way down to the Keys and as a fish swims by within a certain distance that receiver picks that transmission up and records it and people periodically from different institutions will go out and download that data from those receivers look at it and see which fish pass by So you can sort of track the movement of fish and and the seasonality and maybe their habitats that way as well. Mm -hmm. So that's something else that's being done to better understand triple tail movement. Um, And then DMR has initiated a uh, satellite tracking program for triple tail. They've been putting satellite tags on triple tail for the last couple of years. Yeah, that that we helped them do that as well. Yeah, and that's interesting too. That's just another another way of learning about the fish movement its behavior yeah so and i plan on having uh, eric on to uh talk about once we, we plan it on doing it once we get all the information because yeah. he doesn't want to you know no those to come on with well those set tags yeah it takes a while to get that data some of those yeah. record data for several months and then you know then they transmit it yeah. to the satellite but not until that time it's not like you're tracking a whale right, right where every time it breaches or comes up it sends a signal i'm here today these tags work differently so you only get the information once at the, the end at the end when the tag releases from the fish yeah and it's programmed to release on a certain time at a yeah certain and then day. It, it, they said like uh electrolysis will kick in and then the it'll yep. eat away at the wire and yep then there's the a little there's on. a little electronic signal that's given there that sort of it, corrodes the attachment device to the fish and the tag pops to the surface of the water and turns on and starts to transmit the and data to a satellite yeah and they can they, it depends on the, the strength of battery power that's left in those tags sometimes they'll transmit the data for maybe a week or two. Oh wow and then recycle you're getting it over and over again <laughs> sometimes those tags don't work well though that's that's another issue yeah they have had problems with them I think yeah. you said you had some problems. Yeah, with well, we've had problems with them too. <laughs> so uh, you've done that on the tarpons too, huh? Did that on the tarpons. Yeah. And, and what did you guys find? That, what can you tell us about? Well, the the, some of the tarpon tags worked. Some didn't work so well. Uh, we found that uh, most of the fish, when they left our area, headed down toward the, the river, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what Marcus Dryman found out in his tarpon study as well. That he they headed like towards the as well. mouth of the river and they sit there. Yeah. But we didn't get enough data. It looked like a number of our fish were maybe attacked by sharks. Really? Yeah, that seems to be what happened to some of them based on the way the, the data seemed to look. Um, we have a friend in Florida who has done a lot of tarpon tagging over the years. What would indicate to you that there was... It, it's the sudden, just the sudden stoppage of the data. Oh, okay. You know, and then the tag may come off because the fish has been attacked or something the tag mm-hmm. pops to the top 
it gives you all this data about what the fish is doing on a daily basis and all of a sudden it stops mm -hmm. and it's not a tag malfunction it looks like something happened to the fish mm -hmm. and so he's interpreted some of what we found in our data to be shark attack and that's not uncommon I mean down down in Florida you know there are always issues with tarpon and sharks they mm -hmm. sort of swim together but we don't know that for a fact but we just didn't get much data uh, unfortunately we didn't tag that many fish either but how many did you tag I think we tagged like uh, nine I heard somebody out there earlier this year was trying to do it again I guess I don't know who they were with but I heard them on the radio they were yeah uh, maybe there was we we had worked with one person who was going to try to do it but I'm not sure they succeeded we were using we like to get on the boat and do it all ourselves yeah so we just didn't tag that many tarpon Eight, nine. That's pretty good, though. Nine yeah, it's pretty nine. good. We just wish we'd gotten more data, yeah. more information. You know, I think most of them didn't stay on any longer than, with the exception of one, they stayed on maybe up to three weeks, maybe a month. That's not a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not enough to know exactly no, where they go. But we did have one that stayed on for a long period. Do, do you do you do you guys know what the if are the tarpon completely migratory or do they? Think they seem to be. They, they seem to be. Uh, but also, again, now, just like we talked about those other fish, the divers will tell you in Louisiana. Yeah. They see lots of big tarpon around the rigs in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's another. Group. I was going to tell you I've seen them in the wintertime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have, I've seen video, and yeah. they're there in January and February. And mm -hmm. whereas other groups of them have already moved around, they probably moved back to Florida. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's another case of some moving and some not. Yeah. Uh, that's just not well understood how that happens. Yeah, it definitely seems to me like around this time of year, everything moves really close to the river. As it gets cold, seems like it. Everything moves close to the river. I don't, I don't yeah. know why. It just, but but it's in it. It's in them to move closer to the river. Well, you know, <laughs> we've always thought of tarpon as being a migratory fish. Yeah. And yet you see these videos of them in January around the rigs. But now it's they're fairly deep. Yeah. You know, I think maybe a hundred feet, something like that. Hundred. That's not mm -hmm. deep, but. They're down in warmer water. They're on that thermocline. It's, it's yeah. warm. That's why I think that the rigs are so essential for keeping the fish is because, you know, a lot of times as a diver, you can go down and you'll see on that very surface merc layer, there won't be much fish there. And then as you go deeper, um, the middle layer will be really clear. And then underneath, there'll be a lot of silt there. And so it, the, the rig basically allows the fish to adjust to the depth, to the temperature, the sure. salinity, the clarity, whatever yeah. they like, they can get to where they want to be. And it allows them to sit there, you know, and it just, I don't know, it makes a lot of sense to me as it, to yeah, you know, and why I, you would want to live there. <laughs> well, yeah, and I've seen, uh, as long as there's enough food, you know, you don't want to spend all winter out there. Yeah. There's nothing to eat. Yeah. The <laughs> bait does get scarce. It does. Yeah. <laughs> but I've seen videos of, uh, God, it looks like hundreds of tarpon. Yeah. When they're there, they're there. <laughs> yeah, and this is in the wintertime, mm -hmm. which is still kind of amazing. Yeah. You've done a lot of work with the hell divers, huh, over the years? I've heard them talk about uh, Never worked directly w with them, but they've always given me, they've always given good information. <laughs> you know? They've always had a lot of samples, huh? <laughs> well, uh, actually, I didn't say, I haven't sampled any of their fish really I, just, I didn't know if you were part of their some of their tournaments or something no it's uh it, it's just been through conversation oh, okay now i did have a a, a friend who was at lsu and o mm -hmm. who did his work on tarpon mm -hmm. now he did work with them closely he'd go to tournaments really and they were very helpful to him too this is a few years ago yeah they always want to help with that kind of stuff yeah but i, I talked to them recently about um 
this winter business, you know, seeing tarpon offshore in the wintertime, they confirmed that with me. Because mm-hmm. there aren't a lot of groups that do a lot of diving in the wintertime. No, there's not. Yeah, and so it's, their information... scares for me as well. The yeah, their information was, and... yeah, the information's valuable. Yeah. And so they have shared what they've observed, which I always thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. But I've never, never been to their tournaments or sampled any of the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, there's some diving out of here, as you well know, and <laughs> yeah. I've learned a lot over the years yeah. from observations and talks with folks here. Yeah, for sure. Um, was there anything else you want to uh, add about uh, triple tail or tarpon while we talked about those? Uh, just, well, they're just both great fish, you know, just and uh, deserving of protection and yeah. Conservation. Uh, and um, there's just a great history for behind both of these fish, you know, yeah. particularly the tarpon. <laughs> do, you, do you think in, in your time, have you seen that? Uh, this is a, a, a question I've been asking a lot of my uh, pod, uh, podcast guests lately because um, a lot of them have been fishing in Venice for like 30 years, you know, the right. ones that's, I've had that's on my like experience there. But, um, some of them are under the impression that we've always had this many triple tails, as many as people are saying, and we just didn't fish for them. And then I talked to a couple other ones, and they'll tell you, no, that, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that we have more triple tail than we used to have, you know. Yeah. Um, what about you, for, for in your experience, what would you say? I, is it- I, I don't have any, I don't have any uh, information that would lead me to, to say that either way, really. Really, yeah. Uh, because there was there was no fishing on triple tail. Yeah. You know, early in early mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Really, there was some. You know, but there's some. I, Greg's showed me some pictures there, of some older. There were some. There. I have pictures of people going out and fishing with you know cane poles and yeah. You know, out of Biloxi and hanging up on the dock. <laughs> you know, some nice fish, but. Uh, very little very little yeah, and so right. I, we don't know the size of the population then at all yeah um compared to today i just don't know i wish i knew more about that but i don't yeah it's just interesting hearing somebody's like uh personal you know said like i had bobby warren on he was one of my last guests and he he said he said paulia he's like i ain't gonna lie to you it just seemed like they just showed up <laughs> well i mean and, that, and folks are on the water all the time and fish you know they that's a good source of information. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I mean, that's the direct observation. And, yeah. And that's very important. It's just interesting to me is like, if it, you know, how, how long do we got? <laughs> is it going to stay around? Are we going to catch them all? What's going to happen? You know? Don't know. And it's, of course, the important thing, as you know, is as best as possible protecting that, uh, you know, the, the broods, mm-hmm. you know, the, and that's the purpose of some of those regulations because our work showed that at 18 inches, half of the females would be uh, ripe, basically, in a, in a, you know, could spawn. Could spawn. And that's kind of the way some of the management things are dealt with when you don't have a ton of data and there's yeah. been no stock assessments. You just do the very best you can to protect the spawners and the little guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of the purpose of that regulation here in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, as far as the tarpon go, they're just great fish. They've been here in great numbers in the past and looks like we're beginning to see some good numbers again which i like i mm-hmm. think it's i think it's looking pretty particularly the little fellows we've been 
did a lot of work on the juveniles over the years. Juvenile what? No. Tarpon. Really? Oh, yeah, we're finding very small tarpon in the estuaries, and we realize that's, that's good, it, right? it's a nursery for them here now. Yeah, that's good, and we'd like to see that, you know, that continue, and as long as those nurseries and those wetlands are protected, that's good for that population of tarpon here. Yeah. What do you think about the um the uh thing that they built off around island? You know how they built up the island and they have the little estuary in there? Yes. Yeah, I don't know much about it. You don't know much about it? No, I don't. I wish I did, but <laughs> it, it seemed like a neat, you know, pretty neat. But I don't know enough about it to really comment on it. Yeah, I know. I, it was one of those things I would see. I was like, man, they're awfully putting a lot of money into that thing over there. And I kind of thought it was crazy at first. And then... Now you can go there and, and catch fish, and you can yeah. see that it's a clear estuary all the way back in there. The middle yeah, it, it looks good, yeah, yeah and I hope, really it, I hope it's working. Yeah, I was excited to see yeah. that. A lot of, I've, I've even seen commercial guys over there fishing it. I mean, it's sure. it's really holding some fish. And they got rocks on the on the north end of the island yep. that yep. keep fish there as well. So. That, that's good, too. I just hope the thing, I hope it works, and it's, it's yeah, that'd be nice yeah, to know. That would be cool, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have anything to say, Diane? Diane Gibson's here with me, and she runs our tagging program. Um, we, we would like to talk just a minute about the tagging program. If, yeah, go if ahead. You, if you could, we'd like, we'd like for folks who are interested in uh, tagging fish with us to get in touch with us. Uh, because we have, we have tagging kits for triple tail and cobia, uh, speckled trout and redfish uh, at no cost. And we provide tagging kits to those who are interested in tagging and releasing fish. Um, we get the data from them, from, from their information that they provide us on what they did. We got that system set up pretty good now, and then we record all that data. And any time any of their fish are recaptured, we let them know about it. And uh, so we have communication back and forth with our taggers. Mm. Um, it's, it's, a really, it's, it's been in, uh, in the works for many years, and it's proved to be pretty interesting. So we're focusing right now on just red drum and um, specs only in Mississippi waters. Only in Mississippi waters. Because we're trying to understand more about their movements and their behavior that can provide information for stock assessments. But now for Colby and Triple Tail, tag them anywhere from here to Texas to Florida. Where? It, it, it's, it's a big program that we're trying to learn more about their movements as well. Uh, and we have a website that I can provide you with uh, information on that if you'd like, however you'd yeah, like to. Yeah, go ahead, to, uh, whatever, wherever uh, they need to. However you'd order. like to do that. Uh, let me see if I can bring just this Just go up. ahead and say it in case, because some people just listen, but I'll also post it in the uh, in the bio of the podcast as well. Okay. At www.usm.edu forward slash tag and release, all one word. Perfect. Report a tagged fish that you've caught. You can request tag books, or you can enter your tag data that you've collected by being a tagger. So this is a good way to build up our tagging database right? on those four species. And so the more, more you get, the more you just know and oh, yeah. we can figure out, you know. Here we submit an, an annual report. This is all funded by uh, Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. Uh, through the the Fish and Wildlife Service Sport Fish Restoration Program. Okay. So it's 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 a long term program. It's worked very effectively. So, but we would like to recruit new new tigers as well. <laughs> cool. So. I've I've uh, I've tagged a handful. I've been working with the the uh, 
DMR and the, the those other guys with the commission to put the tag the satellite tags and the acoustic tags but I'm trying to get more into the the regular tags like you guys are doing it's a, it's a lot of fun honestly whenever you hear back the information and you kind of figure out where they went and I, I don't know it's like you can look up how fast a fish grows and you can you know read about it but whenever you kind of experience it you know you caught it and you released it and then somebody else caught it it kind of resonates with you a little bit more and and diane will develop a very nice letter <laughs> send you a letter that has a little map on it showing you where the fish was tagged where it went and no. who, who kept who recaptured it and you may want to communicate with them back and forth so it's a pretty nice letter that you get as a tagger and then who's had someone uh, recapture your fish right, right. And like i said it's astounding but we had a cobia that was eight years later and that was just, just what a, did y'all know about that cobia that was eight years later we, we knew it grew a lot <laughs> it grew a lot how yeah. big was it oh i can't remember but yes it, it was it it, it, it was, it was pretty big when they tagged it, so. how so, far how far away did it go it went up the east coast didn't it diane yeah, it was, so uh, it was here and then it went all uh -huh. the way up the east coast yeah it was wow. a big fish when it was tagged but it's probably a couple of years later even bigger yeah but it was probably about as old as it was going to get you know yeah and uh so that was pretty exciting uh yeah. that didn't happen that doesn't happen very often but what that showed us is that that tag we use is a good tag that stayed in the fish that long yeah, you know and it worked pretty, pretty cool. well we get yeah. these tags they're non-toxic they're, they're good tags that we use yeah and if a fish is tagged properly eight years you know, that's crazy <laughs> it's amazing isn't it that is crazy uh <laughs> And of course, every year, you know, at Gordon Flow's Cobia tournament, we encourage tagging. Yeah. And there's a tag release award there, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not for how many you tag, it's just that you participated <laughs> and contributed, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. So that's that's a good thing, too. Yeah. Right. The, um, I, have you heard about the Triple Tail ch uh, Championship, Grand Championship? It was a tournament that they put on this year. It's pretty interesting. Kind of wanted your opinion on it, but they have a, that was a triple tail tournament against around all uh, Mississippi, uh, Mississippi, Florida, Texas, and I think the Carolinas too, basically. But it was all about triple tail, and it lasted from uh, April until October. Um, but you could only enter a fish if you released it. Oh, I, I, so it was strictly tag and release, and they they had a lot of pro money prizes and stuff about it. But you well, guys should to, uh, check that I'll out. Have There's to a tell lot you, of information. I, I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> and Diane, we're not not familiar with that one. We <laughs> we we do work though with uh, each year with a group out of Mobile, uh, Triple Tail Club over there, and it's strictly tag and release, and it's but it's fly fishing. Oh, okay. Fly so fishing. we work with them and provide tags for their tournament. But it's all release. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a neat way to, to work with yeah, them, Yeah, it too. is pretty interesting because they, they asked me to do the tournament, and I was like, man, I'm not doing that. We, we, we're killing enough of these things. And they're like, no, you got to release it. And I was like, oh. I well, haven't heard of that. <laughs> so that's one we haven't heard of. Yeah. That. You know, it's kind of an interesting way to do a tournament, you know. But, see, that's the only thing that gets me about those tournaments is, overall, you're still promoting fishing for triple tail, and you're still going to kill more triple tail the more that we fish for them. And so – I don't know. It's hard for me to – it's one of those things that I'm trying to justify in my mind that if we keep fishing for these things, are they still going to be there, you know? And I don't know. That's one of those things we got to keep fishing. It's one of those things we got to keep pondering upon. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and hopefully more and more uh, 
information will come along, biological information will come along. Yeah. That'll help, you know, with management of that. Yeah. You know, it's almost to me like we got to figure out a way to all come together as because a lot of a lot of it to me is it's uh, commercial guys fighting with recreational, yeah. and, you know, a lot of that finger pointing. But like you said, like you guys have a lot of good information. We do, too. If we can all kind of come to a to a, together and agree on something and push for something, you know, that, yep. that that's where I think it could come. Good. Yeah, and, that, and that's 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 a process that should be the way things are done when fish are being considered for management yeah you know bring everybody together and and, and that's done that is done quite a bit sometimes through public yeah, hearings and things of that sort yeah. just make just want to make sure that it's all listened to and mm-hmm. given and there a lot is a lot of, of reef building too that goes on with the mississippi gulf fish and bangs yep and yep that's there's right a, there's a lot of that goes a lot on. of that goes on and that's, that's sort of it's work it works it seems to work better when everybody's sort of on the same page yeah it's not easy to do though <laughs> it's not no but, but that's sort of the way to go about it yeah. actually yeah um yeah well, cool is there um anything um anything else you want to uh add or anything before i let you go i just really appreciate you coming in no i, I th- no it's great talking with you and glad diane was here <laughs> i don't have no i don't have anything else i just appreciate the opportunity to talk about yeah maybe we can do it again fish. sometime i'd like to maybe do it once a year or something yeah like maybe to. we can get into some other species or some other ideas and yeah but it's uh it's really interesting and i appreciate it paul thank you yeah. very much Wait, one one last thing i know i was kind of wrapping it up there but did you ever do any work with the red snapper and the hatchery and all that kind of stuff though? no i uh that, that hatchery work is separate from, separate from, from what, what our center do. does okay. here okay. it's a it's a different center different operation okay um I'm sorry. we've been in, we've been involved in looking at snapper biology you know, okay. fish that were caught on reefs and some things of that sort. In a recent study we did on that, uh, on feeding and age and reproduction, that was a big study the lab did here on our reefs offshore here. But that didn't involve aquaculture. Okay. Well, what, could you tell us a little bit about that recent study then? Well, the results, I mean, it, it's just so recent, I think we're still trying to put everything together. <laughs> okay. But... Um, Basically, we, we sort of tried to do best as best we could describe what the fish on our reefs were feeding on, and it varies seasonally. Mm-hmm. They have a wide diversity of diet. Uh, it's pretty interesting. They'll eat a lot of things uh, during the, the various seasons. Uh, we found most of the fish that we sampled were smaller fish. They, mm-hmm. they weren't very big. That was just the collection process that was used in this study. Um, they weren't that old, although we know they get old. So uh, we, it was sort of looking at some, some of the smaller fish. The bigger ones that, were in deeper locations. Yeah, yeah the big, big snappers always seem to hang around deeper locations. Deeper. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we ourselves here, Diana, we weren't involved in the reproduction, but it sort of it was a deep study done on the reproduction cycle of red snapper, and some of that's been published already yeah. by our people here documenting you know the seasonality the numbers of eggs the hopefully uh you know the 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 spawning stock size that sort of thing that was done Mm. and i think as time goes along that information will be made available it was just just completed here just recently cool cool so it was exciting yeah um but uh yeah there's a lot still to be learned even believe it or not about red snapper and that was a that was an important study yeah and it it provided us with some good a good funding source and 
it it was it was uh, several years in the making. It seems to be the big push around everything is is the red snapper. <laughs> well, it, 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 yeah, this was really looking at reef fishes, but snapper was the primary, yeah, the primary species, and uh, and it was uh, it was uh, it was a big study that we were involved in here. Uh, DMR was involved in that study with us, and uh, so was the Department of Environmental Quality. There were several groups making that project happen. Um, called it fun, it's funded overall from the by the uh, uh, National Fish and uh, Wildlife Foundation. Okay. That was the source of the funding. Cool. So we appreciated all those opportunities to do that work. Nice, nice. Well, Dr. Franks, I really appreciate it, and um, I uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Paul, it's good to, good to see you, and thanks for doing all this, and we enjoyed it. Thank you. All right.